Hello, and welcome to Storytelling Animals, a green new podcast of climate, ecology, and animal justice. I'm your host, Dayton Martindale, and today my guest is Oliver Millman. He's an environment reporter for The Guardian, and his new book just out this month is called The Insect Crisis, The Fall of the Tiny Empires That Run the World. We talk about um, all the many reasons that we should all be very concerned about uh, the insects of this world, why we need them, how we can protect them and, and help them recover their populations, um, and also follow up on some of the topics from uh, my last episode with the ethicist Jeff Sebo, where we think about, okay, what do we actually owe insects for their own sake, not just because they're useful to humans? I also want to add that um, Oliver briefly mentions the book Silent Spring by Rachel Carson, a very influential book in the environmental movement of the 1960s. Uh, this will actually be the next Storytelling Animals book club book uh, at the end of April, the last Tuesday in April, uh, April 26th. Um, if you are interested in joining that, the monthly book club is for Patreon subscribers of $7 a month or more. But if that is is financially not doable, or if you want to try it out before committing, um, just reach out to me. And uh, I think anyone who signs up for my newsletter uh, in the next month is welcome to to attend that Silent Spring discussion as a trial run. All right, here we go. Good to be with you. Hi. Um, great. Yeah. So before we get into the details about the insect crisis, um, I'm curious about the the backstory of this this book. How did you end up writing about uh, the decline of insect populations? Yeah. I I mean I think I would be surprised as anyone um, to discover, uh, you know, a few years back that I'd be writing my first book on this topic. It wasn't something that I was always hugely animated by. I mean, certainly as a kid, I used to kind of uh, poke underneath kind of rocks and logs and look for earwigs and ants and so on. I was always, I've always been interested in the natural world and wildlife. But um, as an environment writer for, for The Guardian, I've always been drawn to the big kind of charismatic beasts of our time, uh, much like many uh, journalists, you know, who, who cover this area. You're thinking about kind of polar bears and orangutans and rhinos and lions and that, that kind of thing. So... The idea that I'd be writing about um, insects from a kind of conservation and environmental point of view would seem a little strange to me. Um, but then around kind of 2017, 2018, we started to get a kind of torrent of these studies coming out showing huge kind of insect declines in various places around the world. And we, we started to become introduced to these terms like insect Armageddon, insectageddon. Uh, insect catastrophe and so on and there seemed to be this kind of rising awareness that something was seriously amiss in the world of insects um, and it became clear to me the more I kind of poked around the, the topic dug into it and spoke to researchers involved that this was perhaps the conservation story of our time uh, it was like this kind of silent kind of crisis happening in the background of our world but was perhaps more important than any other um 
any other kind of loss that was happening in terms of the natural world. So I thought it was it was a good idea to kind of look into it, to kind of capture that and explain that to, to readers. Mm-hmm. So why why is it so important? You call the you call it in the title the tiny empires that run the world. How do insects run the world? Yeah, I mean they do a lot. The kind of really unheralded, um, unglamorous, uh, not very flashy jobs that actually keep things ticking over on Earth, and we kind of take them for granted. Really, I mean they've been around for so long doing uh, doing these jobs that we we kind of think that. Um, we're kind of the pilots of this uh, show and we're not really we're kind of in the back sipping martinis the pilots are actually insects and other creatures like that they're the ones driving this thing so I mean of course we kind of know that um, primarily insects are very useful for us in terms of pollination we think of bees primarily for that but flies do that too and uh, butterflies and moths as well Um, About a third of the world's food crops depend on uh, insects for pollination. So without them, we wouldn't have apples, cranberries, melons, cherries, blueberries, lots of other things. We wouldn't even have chocolate because um, this tiny midge is responsible for pollinating the cacao plant that chocolate comes from. We wouldn't have ice cream because alfalfa, which is used to uh, uh, feed cows, is uh, pollinated by insects. So all of the kind of colourful, interesting, nutritious things on our plate, as well as the kind of uh, delicious treats that we have to uh, uh, treat ourselves with from time to time, um, they all come from insects. So uh, it's extremely important that um, that food supply is um, secure, uh, especially given the growing uh, population of the world. Uh, we're already in the kind of pollination deficit, so... That's uh, that. That is a concern for those who look at this area. What is a, a pollination deficit? So, a pollination deficit is um, a, a lack of pollinators to produce the volume of food that you require. So, if you have a certain amount of land and you you're looking at a certain yield from that land, fruits or vegetables or other crops, um, a lack of pollinators means that you cannot properly um, propagate those plants and get that yield and uh, we're already seeing the kind of first signs of that the first kind of reductions in yields of certain fruits and vegetables because of lack of pollinators and in places in uh, such as China there's areas there where um, people are actually sent out into fields and fan out with uh, into fields with holding sticks with feathers and brushes on them so that they can hand pollinate the plants themselves so uh yeah that's that's their kind of extreme version of what happens when you have a pollination deficit you you have to somehow try and replace bees and that's mm-hmm. not very easy because they're very good at what they do uh and then in addition to pollination there's some interesting stuff about decomposing feces and and dead life forms yes Yes, that's right. So as much as we don't really like to think about it, um, our dead bodies have to go somewhere or the animals' dead bodies have to go somewhere. Um, All of the um, poo in the world that's created has to be broken down. And that um, wonderful, wonderful job is mainly done by beetles and blowflies and other other insects. Um, One researcher said to me that if it wasn't for insects, we'd be... 
living in a world of poop with um, dead Uncle Jeremy floating on past <laughs> us because we would just be surrounded in this kind of revolting sea of uh, uh, of, of kind of um, crap and uh, uh, dead bodies. Um, so that's a really important uh, task they do. It's important kind of aesthetically and from a health perspective, from our point of view, but it's also important from the functioning of ecosystems because insects are, uh, do an invaluable job in cycling nutrients through um, soils and plants and trees. And the decomposition process is a big part of that. They kind of keep ecosystems ticking over. They keep uh, f- uh, forests and grasslands um, healthy and vibrant, full of life. And so they do all this kind of kind of background work that we, yeah, we do tend to kind of take for granted. With. Mm-hmm. And of course they are food for for birds as well some of the sort of most uh heartstring pulling parts of the book are are hearing about all these birds starving due to insect declines um at least for me so i let's let's talk about that then um because you write in the book that there's a relative lack of data on insect numbers compared to say the all the research that's done on mammals and birds um but that based on the data that we have and the research that's been done, there's a lot of reason to be concerned about insect populations. Um, could you walk us through some of the key points of this evidence? Yeah, sure. So like you say, um, we don't have data on um, insects in every single country in the world. Um, that's part of the, partly due to the fact we don't know all the insects out there in the world. There's a, a million named species of insects in the world, but the estimates could go from kind of 5 million, 10 million, maybe 30 million species of insects out there. We just haven't catalogued all the life out there. And we certainly haven't catalogued all the declines out there. But there are some studies showing some quite extraordinary declines um, in uh, in insect numbers in certain parts of the world. And scientists now are pretty confident in saying there are these kind of widespread losses going on and they have kind of profound consequences for us all. So, I mean, one of the big studies to kind of kick this off, uh, this kind of era of concern over insects um, kind of happened in 2017. There was a study coming out of Germany um, and it looked at uh, the insects caught in traps in nature reserves, 63 nature reserves uh, across Germany. And uh, the scientists who actually crunched this data and it was taken from this entomological society that had it all on kind of floppy disks and typewritten typewritten notes and um, CD-ROMs and stretching mm-hmm. back a while, um, they they found, uh, once they actually crunched those numbers, they kind of found that since 1989, the annual average weight of flying insects there had dropped by 76%, which is incredible. Uh, in the height of summer, when insects are at their peak, it was down 82%. Um, you go look at uh, somewhere completely different, uh, the rainforest of Puerto Rico, El Unque, which is the only rainforest on U.S. Uh, territory. Uh, there's this entomologist who went out there in the 1970s uh, to conduct some surveys of insect life there. He decided to go back a couple of years ago, uh, and he conducted the same sort of trapping research he did in the 70s, and he found 98% of insects by biomass had gone compared uh, to the 1970s um, on the forest floor and up in the canopy it was about an 80% decline um, uh, so these these are kind of extraordinary declines I mean uh, you know 
beetle abundance is down 83% in uh, this forest in New Hampshire that was studied. The butterflies are down 84% in the Netherlands since the 19th century. About half of butterflies in Britain have disappeared in the last 50 years. I mean, wow. wherever you look and wherever the actual studies have been done, you're seeing these, you're seeing these declines. And, and there are some that are um, doing okay and some that are actually increasing due to the changes that we are enacting upon the world. But Overall, the, the the story is pretty pretty grim. There was a couple. There have been a couple of studies looking at the kind of the totality of this. Uh, there was one meta study in twenty eighteen finding that forty percent of insect species are declining globally, and that insect populations are falling by about one to two percent a year around the world. Again, this is a kind of incomplete picture because we don't know everything that's going on, but that's scientists' kind of best guess of what's happening on a on a kind of broad global basis there's one scientist you quote who says uh something to the effect of we aren't necessarily going to see the complete collapse of insects like humans will go extinct before insects do if if it gets that dire but what what is the worst case scenario or even realistic case scenario if we can if we don't change anything of what we're facing with this yeah, I mean, I think that's an important point to think about is that um, we will not uh, outlast insects because they're so important to us and they're so legion that um, we will probably go first. Um, the natural world really doesn't care if um, the world is populated by lions and uh, polar bears and dolphins rather than you know cockroaches and rats and raccoons. I mean, if we're making a world conducive to cockroaches, rats and raccoons, that's what will proliferate. They will take advantage of the conditions that um, we've set up. And that's essentially what we're doing. We're changing the composition of the insect world around us. So, you know, through climate change, for example, um, uh, mosquito uh, range is expanding, especially disease-carrying mosquitoes. So an extra billion people in, in the world are expected to be exposed to disease-carrying mosquitoes due to uh, the heating up of the planet. Um, cockroaches, there's two species of cockroach out of many thousands that there are, that are um, very well adapted to human life, the American cockroach and the German cockroach. So they they will do quite well in a world where there's more people, more waste, more places for them to kind of scuttle around and hide in our in our homes. That's that's kind of a good change for them. But many of the things that we value, many of the things that we think are important or beautiful or worthy of uh, continued life in the world, they're, they're the things being... Uh, threatened um, the bees and butterflies and other uh, kind of interesting creatures the fireflies um, the things that really come to light us as well as have a kind of functional obvious functional use for us um, so the loss of them is is quite a profound one um, in terms of food security so the united nations has already warned that uh, food security is an issue due to pollination declines there's one study showing there's going to be more than a million extra deaths around the world a year due to conditions leading from the malnutrition due to um, due to lack of pollination, heart disease and other conditions like that. Uh, and we're already seeing the kind of reduction uh, happening. So that that's already in train. Um, you also start to see bird declines and other creatures that rely upon insects for food. So we're already seeing that. Um, there's studies showing 
big drops in bird numbers in France, in Germany, uh, in Canada. Even in the heart of the Amazon rainforest, you, you're seeing the insect-eating birds uh, falling away, such as kind of warblers, the what, swallows, the bluebirds. And generally speaking, those are the insect-eating birds that are not doing well. Well, the omnivorous birds, such as crows and starlings, they're they're pretty holding steady. So um, there is kind of the, this kind of fingerprint of evidence of insect declines um, wherever you look, really. So we kind of risk losing um, larger creatures. We risk losing a lot of our food supply. We risk having kind of, just in generally speaking, uh, less vibrant, uh, less healthy, less sustainable uh, landscapes around us in terms of forests and other 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 types of ecosystems so um yeah the the impacts are kind of broad when you think about what will happen if uh, we keep losing insects at this rate you mentioned that uh mosquitoes and and cockroaches or at least particular species thereof uh, might actually do okay with with certain human impacts um but one of the things i appreciate in the book is that you you hasten to add not all mosquitoes and not all cockroaches um, could you maybe share a couple of the surprising or fun, fun facts you learned about insect species that might not be as beloved as a, a butterfly or a honeybee? <laughs> sure. So, I mean, cockroaches are really interesting creatures in that we despise them and we don't want them anywhere near us. And yet there is no evidence to show they spread disease in humans at all. Um, if you're asthmatic, they may uh, let off pheromones, which uh, uh, are not helpful, but they aren't the kind of uh, dreadful monsters we consider them to be. They're, in fact, incredibly impressive. I mean, they these are creatures that can survive for two weeks after being beheaded. They can uh, bite with a force 50 times their own body weight. They can fit into tiny cracks. Um, and they come in all shapes and sizes. I mean, most of them kind of live in forests doing important work in terms of the ecology of the forest uh, there's a giant the largest one is the giant burrowing cockroach which looks a bit like a walking helmet because it's got armor on it and some people even keep it as a pet in australia um, so they they have a kind of remarkable diversity to them uh, and they do a lot of important work other than just um, terrify us <laughs> at home uh, uh, mosquitoes are the same really to an extent i mean as much as they have a negative impact due to disease they, diseases they carry. They actually um, do work that we don't really appreciate. I mean, they are food for, um, you know, amphibians and birds um, that would suffer if they weren't around. Uh, and they pollinate plants as well, tansies and some other other plants that they they are pollinator for. So um, even the most uh, reviled insects have their role. Nothing is kind of um, completely out of place on this planet, even if we would wish it to to die off. Mm-hmm. There's kind of a, I don't know if tension is too strong a word, but a, I'll call it a tension in your book between, um, you know, you have you have sections where you're really trying to convince us that, you know, humans should care about insects because this decline is going to have dramatic and drastic impacts upon humans. And I think that's true, and that should be sufficient for us to care. Um, but you also, in other parts, 
seem to you want to convince us that actually insects are pretty cool um and that maybe we shouldn't only see them as tools for us um so how how do you think about kind of these two distinct but related uh reasons for caring about insects yeah it's a really good question because i think there's always a danger we kind of go down this kind of human-centric viewpoint um uh, where we see things only in relation to us or or benefit or otherwise to us and i think that has been uh one of the reasons why we find ourselves in the mess we do now we we kind of have blundered around the world changing things killing things off um without not without much thought to the kind of long-term consequences but more more about the short-term gains to ourselves so um i think that's i did want to kind of keep coming back to the to the um, intrinsic value of insects that they're not just here to service us um they're not just here for our amusement or or displeasure they have been around for 400 million years much longer than us they've outlasted the dinosaurs um they're worthy of our respect they're not just um tools of our of us so i did want to come keep coming back to that but i was also very aware that um there are not many people although there are lots of insects fans out there surprising number actually i found through this book there are not many people out there who are going to radically change their lives just for insects benefit uh, there's not lots of people who are going to even do small things probably for insects benefit um the best way to think about how we can change things for them is also the co-benefits that we will have um i mean ultimately that is the way that this problem will probably get solved is because we'll change some things with ourselves in mind um i mean ultimately it is a book about insect conservation but it is it could be a book about human conservation <laughs> because um without without them would be nothing so uh, we need to save them but we need to save ourselves too mm-hmm. it's funny uh on the previous episode i uh, spoke with uh, the ethicist and philosopher Jeff Sebo, um, who just wrote a book called Saving Animals, Saving Ourselves. And toward the end of the book and toward the end of that interview, uh, Jeff and I started talking about insects and kind of his take is that we know enough about insect cognition and and neuro neurological structures that we can at least think there's a an okay chance that they are are sentient and think and feel and if there's even an okay chance uh then we should start worrying about them um for their own sakes as well um there are Mm. three three main causes that come up throughout your book uh that threaten insects uh both again their intrinsic well-being and, and flourishing and also uh their roles in in human societies and and helping us uh pesticides climate change and habitat destruction um i'm not going to ask you to sort of rehash the whole book i want people to read it but um if we could maybe just go through one by one uh the the general shape of the threat um starting with pesticides yeah sure so i mean we've doused a very large part of our world with these chemicals Um, there's a few different types obviously herbicides and fungicides are are two classes but the main one obviously for 
insects point of view is insecticides and um, what you're seeing now across the US landscape is a, a drastically more poisonous environment than it once was. I mean by one estimate US agriculture has become 48 times more toxic to insect life than it was 20, 25 years ago. So there's been this layering of uh, pesticides in the environment um, that just has built up and up and up and up to the point where it's um, just extremely deadly for insects and not just the pests that they're aimed at but um, all other kind of insect life that comes into contact with it, the bees, the butterflies, uh, the beetles and so on. Neonicotinoids are the class of chemicals that are most widely used and the most dangerous for insects. Uh, it's been calculated they're about 7,000 times more toxic to bees than DDT, which was that kind of infamous uh, uh, chemical from uh, that was um, uh, restricted in the US following the publication of Silent Spring by Rachel Carson in the 1960s, uh, was blamed for the decline of bald eagles in America. So um, we're actually, actually spreading chemicals that are actually worse by uh, orders of magnitude uh, than DDT across the land. Um, uh, and the frustrating thing, I think, for many many entomologists is there's good evidence this doesn't really help crop yields it's not it's not hugely beneficial for farmers so uh, they've been caught up in this kind of toxic cycle that's been um, terrible for wildlife so that's um that's uh, pesticide view mm -hmm. and then you mentioned that uh climate change in some cases is going to be good for uh, the mosquitoes that spread malaria because they like warmer temperatures um, but what is what's an example of an insect that will be harmed by climate change? Uh, I mean, a lot of them, really. There was one study showing that um, half of all insects will lose more than half of their current habitable range wow. if the the temperature increase um, continues unrestrained by the end of the century. So, I mean, insects um, are usually constrained to a fairly narrow band of uh, habitat and therefore climate and temperature i mean unless you're a monarch butterfly or a or a dragonfly you can't move great distances if you're an insect um so you're kind of stuck where you're where you are um you know there are bumblebees in the arctic for example there are bumblebees even in the u.s that have been found to be uh, suffering because of the warming temperatures um they just can't cope with it they can't regulate their bodies they can't move uh, in any way to escape them so they're so they're suffering so um there's there's this yeah kind of major impacts from that and they're kind of broad kind of impact from the scrambling up of the seasons so you know some places in the u.s um spring springtime is arriving about 20 days earlier than it did um you know at the start of the last century so you know that that triggers all kinds of problems because obviously you have this kind of um, you have this kind of uh, process happening in tandem between insects and plants. When plants start to blossom, you get the insects there, and then you get the birds there. It happens all in a kind of interlinked way. So once you start messing around with springtime and it arriving earlier, you have that whole relationship is out of kilter, is out of sync. And that's what we're, we're seeing happening, and it's detrimental to everything involved. Mm -hmm. 
and you mentioned that um, you know changing climates will uh, reduce the available habitat available to insects. What are some of the other ways that we're destroying insect habitat? Well, I mean we've we've chopped down a third of the world's trees since the age of industrialization, so um, that in itself has obviously had an impact. Um, we've transformed. Um, insect-rich environments such as grasslands, kind of wildflower meadows, into monocultural farming fields, um, uh, you know, highways, urban sprawl, industrial areas and so on. We've, we've essentially created a kind of hellscape for a lot of insects because they can't really survive very well in those that kind of environment. They like a like a kind of diversity of, of plants, a kind of untidiness that we don't like, um, and they and and they like and they like um, the kinds of things that we don't tend to plant very often in terms of the foods we want to grow for ourselves and that are profitable. So, one researcher said, um, "It's like uh, it's like all there is to eat is chips. Even if you don't like chips or allergic to chips, that's all you're given is chips." Uh, and that's what it's like if you're a bee and you're looking over a, a field of soy or corn. I mean, there's just nothing else there for you. Um, and I think that kind of gets to a kind of key key kind of reason for this, uh, which is this kind of fundamental difference to how we view the world versus how insects survive and how their well-being. I mean, it's polar opposites. We like a kind of tidy, ordered systematic way of doing things with our land we like everything in its right place um we call plants a weed if it's in the wrong place i mean that's the only reason you call it a weed um because we don't like it where it is um, whereas to insect that's food and shelter um insects like the kind of bohemian untidiness that we dislike we like you know manicured lawns and tidy borders and we think that um if there's kind of things growing in urban areas, for example, we think that it's a sign of, you know, dereliction and decay rather than life springing back. So there is that kind of fundamental disconnect between us and insects as to what uh, what life should look like and how we should operate. You mentioned uh, the the manicured American lawn. Um, yeah, what if someone? Obviously, a lot of these solutions to this are going to be at a much larger scale than what, you know, a given individual can do on their own. Um, but what do you have any tips for how to have a more insect friendly yard? Yeah, for sure. I mean, like you say, a lot, a lot of this kind of has to happen at a kind of policy level around farming practices and pesticide use and climate change and so on. But I think the encouraging thing is that there are, lots of things people can do individually that can make a difference um, a million sort of changes by a million people can um, can do a lot um, and certainly you could start in your yard if you do have a yard maybe don't mow it um, every week let the grass grow a bit because insects like that they can't really do much with kind of you know this kind of single swath of uh, trimmed grass they, there's not much of a home for them you could maybe not rake the leaves in your yard because insects like to gather under there. You could um, you could plant a kind of variety of native 
plants let wildflowers grow a bit rather than kind of stick to you know ornamental plants exotic flowers from from long distance away and, uh, so that native pollinators could have somewhere to to feed and you can certainly cut down the number of chemicals you use on your property so there's a lot a lot you can do i mean one of the most startling things i found out in the book is that um, lawns are the single largest irrigated crop in america um like the three times amount of land is given over to lawns in America than corn. Um, but you wouldn't think about it uh, in that way. I mean, it's just a huge amount of space that's given over to just grass. Um, sure, grass that doesn't really have any life in it. Um, so culturally, we perhaps need to rethink on that. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other short sections of the book that really struck me as something that I don't think a lot about is light pollution and the effects on insects. Um, can you, yeah, I, you, you, I know that moths are drawn to light, but I, I hadn't really thought much about the broader effects. Yeah. Yeah. There's, um, there's, there's all kinds of insects out there that have relied upon that kind of very reliable switch between day and night time for all kinds of things mating uh, communication um, uh, finding food and we've we've kind of messed up that up really by kind of lighting up the night sky and light pollution is obviously something um, we think about a bit when we look for the stars i suppose if you're in a city but beyond that we don't really think about it that much um, but for insects it's it's a matter of life and death Especially, I mean, most visibly things like fireflies that need a kind of dark sky in order to um, communicate with each other with their flashes. Um, if they're unable to do that, then they cannot find mates. Uh, they cannot communicate with each other, and that's disastrous for them. Um, there's this kind of constant glow around now. Uh, of scientists will tell you it's never truly dark in a lot of places. Um, obviously, if you go out into kind of deep into rural areas you can get that darkness and that's um that's fine but um in a lot of around a lot of cities in the suburbs it's um it's it's very light it's just this kind of low level light that's always around it's never completely dark and that's um that's really harmful for a lot of insects Mm -hmm. um the i think one of the we talked about this earlier but the admirable thing the book tries to do is you know, shine some light on the the flies and the beetles and the insects who maybe don't get um, a lot of positive press. But you do also have a couple chapters toward the end on one on uh, honeybees and bees in general, and another on monarch butterflies that are are insects that are maybe kind of more famous and more liked, um, but that also uh, perhaps not greatly understood uh in the public i was surprised by a lot of things in the honeybee section in particular um for instance we we know about bee colony declines uh we've we've read you know headlines about that um but there i was sadly surprised to see that uh for instance raising honeybees in your backyard uh can sometimes end up displacing native bees. Um, I also had no idea about the 
I forget what you called it, the pollination Super Bowl or something where to get almonds, they truck all these honeybees across the country to California in a particular part of the season. And then, the, you know, they truck a bunch more somewhere else to pollinate another crop. So could you actually just talk a little bit about how that that sort of uh, those migratory pollinators? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's quite a kind of complex picture i guess i mean if you just you want to talk about the honeybees going to california i mean that's a huge logistical exercise um that basically keeps food production um afloat in america i mean it's not just they go to the central valley of california they're then trucked up to you know the u.s um, northwest uh for blueberries you take them down to florida for the citrus fruits i mean these are kind of traveling workers really um that are kind of sent on the back of trucks um and have become so valuable that there's this flourishing criminal enterprise out there to steal beehives because their pollination services are so um have become so expensive now it actually is it makes it worthwhile for thieves to steal uh, beehives from beekeepers and sell them on so there is this kind of uh, massive industry in, in pollination now and yeah the the role of a beekeeper has certainly changed from what you would imagine it to be i mean it used to be this kind of sideline hobby you know this you'd have someone in a near beekeeping suit maybe have a couple of hives out back something you could just do for a bit of fun you'd have some honey for your toast but now it's now you're a kind of contractor for huge farming corporations who this kind of unquenchable thirst for pollination and you're desperately trying to keep your bee numbers up to fulfill those contracts uh, and keep um, the food supply steady um, and it's becoming a, just a tougher tougher uh, task for them i'm going to speak to beekeepers who are just saying jesus is just so difficult because the disease that's going through uh, the honeybee communities um the obviously climate change they're dealing with pesticides they're dealing with it's it's hard just to keep the bee numbers up one of them said it was a bit like we're uh, addicted to heroin here because um you know you can't say no to the the money on offer from the contracts but you have to do these kind of kind of questionable things these kind of unsustainable things to kind of keep honeybee numbers up so yeah it was a real kind of eye-opener to kind of show exactly how dependent we are on these on these creatures and the lengths that people have to go to keep the show on the road yeah i it's always wild how even as someone who tries to read a lot and has written about different aspects of the food system or environmental issues that there are always just more facts about how I don't know just kind of crazy it all is just you know oh my gosh people are trucking i don't know how many bees across the country all the time it's just not something that was on my bingo card of of things that i thought growing almonds required no no yeah i was surprised me too when i kind of looked into it i went out to california and i spoke to a bee broker who's someone who matches up um beekeepers with uh, farmers a kind of matchmaking service almost i didn't even know that 
bee broker was a job. I didn't think that that was something that somebody could do as a job. And yet the woman I spoke to, she only works for two months a year. She makes enough income from matching up beehives with farmers who need them uh, that she can work for just two months a year and spend the rest of the time playing golf. So, um, yeah, it was an eye-opening trip for me, for sure. Also got stung in the lip by a bee, so it was an eventful (laughs) trip. I don't forget journalism. Um, Yeah, so speaking of bees... Um, one of the things that stuck out to me, um, you, you talk with the scientists who was involved in this study where they cut off, um, kind of beheaded bees to check the effects of certain pesticides on their brains. And, uh, the scientist, the scientist says something like, you know, it's not what you want to do, but it's worth it for science. And it did kind of strike me that a lot of the studies that we're talking about, about um, how they figure out how many insects are are in a certain place and how the populations have changed, is basically they set up traps um, that capture and, and kill the insects and they just count, um, you know, this trap in this area caught 100 insects 10 years ago and now it only catches... 30 or you know obviously those numbers are made up um but i'm i'm wondering if just if that was something on on your mind as all as as, at all as you were writing um or researching is just sort of the the, that researching them involved killing them yes yeah i mean to study insects in any way usually involves killing them unfortunately or sending them demented by giving them small amounts of um, insecticide to see what it does to them um, I mean, that's been the case going back years, of course. We think about those kind of boards of pinned insects where people collect insects. You don't collect live insects. Mm-hmm. You skewer them and put them on the board um, to, to count insects. Uh, traditionally, the way was to kind of fog trees with this kind of, uh, with these plumes of um, chemicals uh, which would kill them and they would just fall to the floor and you could collect them, uh, you know a lot of the traps used involve kind of alcohol traps to to kind of funnel insects into a into an alcohol trap and, and and get them there so yeah in order to study insects involves killing a lot of them um uh, uh i hadn't seen a kind of alternative put forward otherwise but um yeah it's it's certainly striking how many have to die in order for us to know what's going on with them yeah I... I think it would be cool if there were alternatives, but I have no idea. But I think what we can maybe do is at least try to make good on that research that's already done um, and make it pay off for the insects. Um, so, yeah, you talked about uh, that that sort of larger scale farming policies and climate policies need to change. Um, toward the end of the book, you lay out what you call an inaction plan. Um, what are, you know, beyond the scale of, of lawns and porch lights, what are some of the larger scale things we can do to, to help insects? Well, I mean, the European Union, for example, has banned the three main types of neonicotinoids, which are these um, deadly class of chemicals that affect insects so badly. Um, France has gone even further and banned them for greenhouse use as well as for outdoor use. The US could do that, I mean, rather than keep authorising the use of these chemicals. 
um, that the EPA continues to do here. Uh, I mean, Germany has done some interesting work around reducing light pollution, also banning um, gas-powered leaf blowers so that uh, insects' homes aren't as disturbed as they are otherwise. Um, and, of course, there's action to be taken on climate change. I mean, that's a huge multifaceted problem with a lot of reasons for action. Um, but uh, certainly acting upon it would, uh, would benefit insects. So um, there are quite a lot of things that um, people can do to help. Uh, quite a lot of big policy changes that are required. Um, another important thing conservationists are thinking about now is wildlife corridors linking up habitat so a lot of the habitat has been lost which is important but also it's become isolated so insects aren't able to move through uh, and um, you know feed and mate and so on so there's some work being done by some green groups on how to connect up these spots so it's not just tiny pockets of uh, habitat here and there it's actually a kind of network so yeah, there's lots of work that could be done, but um, uh, we're not quite there yet. <laughs> yeah, I, I talked with the food writer, Mark Bittman, a couple episodes ago, and he talked about how he has been on um, what are called agroecological farms, where you almost can't even tell that it's a farm because there are so many different types of plant um, and and wildlife species that it doesn't look anything like you know, the rows and rows of, of soy or corn that we might imagine. Um, and I think you mentioned in the book that maybe a a milder but still super useful uh, step in this direction would just be even surrounding farms with patches of of wilder land. Hmm. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of these changes are things that won't cost us, won't certainly won't cost farmers. I mean... They're not going to lose out financially if they just have a border of wildflowers rather than just cutting down everything at the, the edges of their fields. I mean, it's not. it will actually help them, really, because they'll be ushering back in insects that can eat the pests that they don't like around. So um, there's lots of kind of changes that we can do that will come to little cost to us or, and, in, and in fact, benefit us in many ways um, by acting upon it. We just need the will to do it. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope I hope this book does something good in, in generating the will and more people um, more people start to get concerned about insects, more people involved in again not only whatever small scale things they can do on their own, but um, joining organizations concerned with climate change and farm policy and and pesticides and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, I, is there anything you wanted to, to add on all this or any final words? No, just just maybe um, hopefully people listening can think about what's around it a bit more and, uh, and uh, appreciate the, these, tiny, these tiny wonderful creatures. Think about them a bit as we go about our lives. But um, other than that, I think, um, I think we covered some really good ground. Right. Thank you so much, Oliver. Yes, everyone, please, after you finish listening, go outside or and look around and notice 10 insects. It's your homework. All right. Thanks, everyone. That was Oliver Millman, author of The Insect Crisis, The Fall of the Tiny Empires That Run the World.
I actually, a couple hours after recording this interview, went out and did the sort of silly little homework assignment I gave. Uh, and the first six insects I found were ants. And I thought, okay, I don't just want to find 10 ants. And then I was looking around some more and saw some some brown flying bugs that I didn't know what they were called. And it occurred to me, A, I wonder if I would have found more insects more quickly 10, 20, 30 years ago. And B, that I wish I knew that, you know, the type of ant that, that lived where I grew up, the, the names of all these insects. And um, so, yeah, I'm not, <laughs> not going to commit to looking into that, but I'm going to commit publicly that I would like to know and, and think we should be taught in school. Uh, the, the natural history of, of where we grow up as well. Um, one other quick thought before we go. Uh, I've been thinking about that exchange Oliver and I had about how a lot of the research that um, has shown the decline of insects involves killing insects. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of said, it, I guess we don't know what an alternative is. The alternative would be not doing the research Um and in a lot of cases, that's the alternative I would favor. In this case, you know, I wonder if we would even know that we should be raising the alarm about insects if this research hadn't been done. Um, you know, that's not to say it's it's worth it or it isn't worth it, but that it's kind of one of these these thorny questions where the what I would consider to be the rights of the, the individual animals might come into conflict with the well-being of of other animals of, of their species or other species. Um, these are some of the issues we discussed with uh, Emma Maris in the very first episode, Jeff Sebo in the last episode, um, and they're they're not going to go away. Um, yeah, I don't necessarily have anything more insightful than that to add, but I guess I'm curious uh, if if any listeners can can point to point me to any interesting thoughts about um, insect research ethics, uh, any papers or articles they've read, or or just their own thoughts. Um, please send them my way on, on Twitter, or, or you can find my email also on Twitter. Um, cool. I should say I'm uh, reminded of a quote from Henry David Thoreau as well, who wrote, um, The inhumanity of science concerns me, as when I am tempted to kill a rare snake that I may ascertain its species. I feel that this is not the means of acquiring true knowledge. Um, and I feel like I would like to believe that killing insects is, is not the way to acquire true knowledge, but yeah, just curious for thoughts on this. Also, that word is ascertain, not ascertain. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider uh, sharing it to your social media, sending it to a friend, uh, signing up for my, my weekly email list where you'll get the latest email straight to your inbox and supporting us on Patreon. As mentioned at the beginning, um, our next, or our, our April book club, April 26th at 5.30 Pacific, 8.30 Eastern is going to be discussing Silent Spring. So we'll be talking a lot more about pesticides. So if you enjoyed this conversation, you might enjoy that one. Have a good day. Thank you.